Section 10 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Coleman. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 10. It has been generally said, I know not with what truth, that Johnson offered his London to several booksellers, none of whom would purchase it. To this circumstance Mr. Derrick alludes in the following lines of his Fortune a Rhapsody. Will no kind patron Johnson own? Shall Johnson friendless range the town, and every publisher refuse the offspring of his happy muse? But we have seen that the worthy, modest, and ingenious Mr. Robert Dodsley had taste enough to perceive its uncommon merit, and thought it creditable to have a share in it. The fact is that at a future conference he bargained for the whole property of it, for which he gave Johnson ten guineas, who told me, I might perhaps have accepted of less, but that Paul Whitehead had a little before got ten guineas for a poem, and I would not take less than Paul Whitehead. I may here observe that Johnson appeared to me to undervalue Paul Whitehead upon every occasion when he was mentioned, and, in my opinion, did not do him justice. But when it is considered that Paul Whitehead was a member of a riotous and profane club, we may account for Johnson's having prejudice against him. Paul Whitehead was indeed unfortunate in being not only slighted by Johnson, but violently attacked by Churchill, who utters the following imprecation, May I, can worse disgrace on manhood fall, be born a Whitehead and baptised a Paul? yet I shall never be persuaded to think meanly of the author of so brilliant and pointed a satire as Manners. Johnson's London was published in May 1738, and it is remarkable that it came out on the same morning with Pope's satire, entitled 1738, so that England had at once its juvenile and Horace as poetical monitors. The Reverend Dr. Douglas, now Bishop of Salisbury, to whom I am indebted for some obliging communications, was then a student at Oxford, and remembers well the effect which London produced. Everybody was delighted with it, and there being no name to it, the first buzz of the literary circles was, Here is an unknown poet, greater even than Pope. And it is recorded in the Gentleman's Magazine of that year that it got to the second edition, in the course of a week. Note. Sir John Hawkins, page 86, tells us, The event is antedated in the poem of London, but in every particular, except the difference of a year, what is there said of the departure of Thales must be understood of savage, and looked upon as true history. This conjecture is, I believe, entirely groundless. I have been assured that Johnson said he was not so much as acquainted with Savage when he wrote his London. If the departure mentioned in it was the departure of Savage, 
the event was not antedated, but foreseen. For London was published in May 1738, and Savage did not set out for Wales till July 1739. However well Johnson could defend the credibility of second sight, he did not pretend that he himself was possessed of that faculty. End of note. One of the warmest patrons of this poem on its first appearance was General Oglethorpe, whose strong benevolence of soul was unabated during the course of a very long life, though it is painful to think that he had but too much reason to become cold and callous and discontented with the world, from the neglect which he experienced of his public and private worth by those in whose power it was to gratify so gallant a veteran with marks of distinction. This extraordinary person was as remarkable for his learning and taste as for his other eminent qualities, and no man was more prompt, active, and generous in encouraging merit. I have heard Johnson gratefully acknowledge in his presence the kind and effectual support which he gave to his London, though unacquainted with its author. Pope, who then filled the poetical throne without a rival, it may reasonably be presumed, must have been particularly struck by the sudden appearance of such a poet. And, to his credit, let it be remembered that his feelings and conduct on the occasion were candid and liberal. He requested Mr. Richardson, son of the painter, to endeavour to find out who this new author was. Mr. Richardson, after some inquiry, having informed him that he had discovered only that his name was Johnson, and that he was some obscure man, Pope said, He will soon be detere. We shall presently see, from a note written by Pope, that he was himself afterwards more successful in his inquiries than his friend. That in this justly celebrated poem may be found a few rhymes which the critical precision of English prosody at this day would disallow, cannot be denied. But with this small imperfection, which in the general blaze of its excellence is not perceived till the mind has subsided into cool attention, it is undoubtedly one of the noblest productions in our language, both for sentiment and expression. The nation was then in that ferment against the court and the ministry, which some years after ended in the downfall of Sir Robert Walpole, and, as it has been said, that Tories are Whigs when out of place, and Whigs Tories when in place. So, as a Whig administration ruled with what force it could, a Tory opposition had all the animation and all the eloquence of resistance to power, aided by the common topics of patriotism, liberty, and independence. Accordingly, we find in Johnson's London the most spirited invectives against tyranny and oppression, the warmest predilection for his own country, and the purest love of virtue, interspersed with traits of his own particular character and situation not omitting his prejudices as a true-born Englishman, 
not only against foreign countries, but against Ireland and Scotland. On some of these topics I shall quote a few passages. The cheated nation's happy favourite see, Mark whom the great caress who frown on me. Has heaven reserved in pity to the poor, No pathless waste or undiscovered shore, No secret island in the boundless main, No peaceful desert yet unclaimed by Spain? Quick let us rise, the happy seats explore, And bear oppression's insolence no more. How, when competitors like these contend, Can surly virtue hope to fix a friend? This mournful truth is everywhere confessed, Slow rises worth by poverty depressed. We may easily conceive with what feeling a great mind like his, cramped and galled by narrow circumstances, uttered this last line, which he marked by capitals. The whole of the poem is eminently excellent, and there are in it such proofs of a knowledge of the world and of a mature acquaintance with life as cannot be contemplated without wonder when we consider that he was then only in his twenty-ninth year, and had yet been so little in the busy haunts of men. Yet, while we admire the poetical excellence of this poem, candour obliges us to allow that the flame of patriotism and zeal for popular resistance with which it is fraught had no just cause. There was, in truth, no oppression. The nation was not cheated. Sir Robert Walpole was a wise and a benevolent minister, who thought that the happiness and prosperity of a commercial country like ours would be best promoted by peace, which he accordingly maintained with credit during a very long period. Johnson himself afterwards honestly acknowledged the merit of Walpole, whom he called a fixed star, while he characterised his opponent Pitt as a meteor. But Johnson's juvenile poem was naturally impregnated with the fire of opposition, and upon every account was universally admired. Though thus elevated into fame, and conscious of uncommon powers, he had not that bustling confidence, or, I may rather say, that animated ambition which one might have supposed would have urged him to endeavour at rising in life. But such was his inflexible dignity of character that he could not stoop to court the great, without which hardly any man has made his way to a high station. He could not expect to produce many such works as his London, and he felt the hardships of writing for bread, he was therefore willing to resume the office of a schoolmaster, so as to have a sure, though moderate, income for his life, and an offer being made to him of the mastership of a school, provided he could obtain the degree of Master of Arts, Dr. Adams was applied to by a common friend to know whether that could be granted him as a favour from the University of Oxford but though he had made such a figure in the literary world, it was then thought too great a favour to be asked. 
Note. In a billet written by Mr. Pope in the following year, this school is said to have been in Shropshire. But as it appears from a letter from Earl Gower that the trustees of it were some worthy gentlemen in Johnson's neighbourhood, I in my first edition suggested that Pope must have, by mistake, written Shropshire instead of Staffordshire. But I have since been obliged to Mr. Spearing, attorney at law, for the following information. William Adams, formerly citizen and haberdasher of London, founded a school at Newport, in the county of Salop, by deed dated 27th November 1656, by which he granted the yearly sum of sixty pounds to such able and learned schoolmaster, from time to time, being of godly life and conversation, who should have been educated at one of the universities of Oxford or Cambridge, and had taken the degree of Master of Arts, and was well read in the Greek and Latin tongues, as should be nominated from time to time by the said William Adams, during his life, and after the decease of the said William Adams, by the governors, namely the Master and Wardens of the Haberdashers' Company of the City of London, and their successors. The manor and lands out of which the revenues for the maintenance of the school were to issue, are situate at Knightton and Adberston, in the county of Stafford. From the foregoing account of this foundation, particularly the circumstances of the salary being sixty pounds, and the degree of Master of Arts being a requisite qualification in their teacher, it seemed probable that this was the school in contemplation, and that Lord Gower erroneously supposed that the gentlemen who possessed the lands, at which the revenues issued, were trustees of the charity. Such was probable conjecture, but in the Gent Mag for May 1793 there is a letter from Mr. Hen, one of the masters of the school of Appleby in Leicestershire, in which he writes as follows. I compared time and circumstance together, in order to discover whether the school in question might not be this of Appleby. Some of the trustees at that period were worthy gentlemen of the neighbourhood of Lichfield. Appleby itself is not far from the neighbourhood of Lichfield. The salary, the degree requisite, together with the time of election, all agreeing with the statutes of Appleby. The election, as said in the letter, could not be delayed longer than the 11th of next month, which was the 11th of September, just three months after the annual audit day of Appleby School, which is always on the 11th of June, and the statutes enjoin, ne olius praeceptorum electio diutius tribus mensibus morarator, etc. These I thought to be convincing proofs that my conjecture was not ill-founded, and that in a future edition of that book the circumstance might be recorded as fact. But what banishes every shadow of doubt is the minute-book of the school, which declares the headmastership to be, at that time, vacant. I cannot omit returning thanks to this learned gentleman for the very handsome manner in which he has in that letter been so good as to speak of this work. End of note. Hawkins, Life, page 61, says that Johnson went to Appleby in August 1738 and offered himself as a candidate for the mastership. 
the date of 1738 seems to be Hawkins's inference. If Johnson went at all, it was in 1739. Pope, the friend of Swift, would not, of course, have sought Lord Gower's influence with Swift. He applied to his lordship, no doubt, as a great Midland County landowner, likely to have influence with the trustees. Why, when the difficulty about the degree of M.A. was discovered, Pope was not asked to solicit Swift, cannot be known. See post, beginning of 1780, in Boswell's account of the life of Swift. Pope, without any knowledge of him but from his London, recommended him to Earl Gower, who endeavoured to procure for him a degree from Dublin, by the following letter to a friend of Dean Swift. Sir, Mr. Samuel Johnson, author of London, a satire, and some other poetical pieces, is a native of this country, and much respected by some worthy gentlemen in his neighbourhood, who are trustees of a charity school now vacant. The certain salary is sixty pounds a year, of which they are desirous to make him master, but, unfortunately, he is not capable of receiving their bounty, which would make him happy for life, by not being a master of arts, which, by the statutes of this school, the master of it must be. Now these gentlemen do me the honour to think that I have interest enough in you, to prevail upon you to write to Dean Swift, to persuade the University of Dublin to send a diploma to me, constituting this poor man Master of Arts in their university. They highly extol the man's learning and probity, and will not be persuaded that the university will make any difficulty of conferring such a favour upon a stranger, if he is recommended by the dean. They say he is not afraid of the strictest examination, though he hears of so long a journey, and will venture it, if the dean thinks it necessary, choosing rather to die upon the road than be starved to death in translating for booksellers, which has been his only subsistence for some time past. I fear there is more difficulty in this affair than those good-natured gentlemen apprehend, especially as their election cannot be delayed longer than the 11th of next month. If you see this matter in the same light that it appears to me, I hope you will burn this, and pardon me for giving you so much trouble about an impracticable thing. But, if you think there is a probability of obtaining the favour asked, I am sure your humanity, and propensity to relieve merit in distress, will incline you to serve the poor man, without my adding any more to the trouble I have already given you, than assuring you that I am, with great truth, sir, your faithful servant, Gower. Trentham, August 1st, 1739. It was, perhaps, no small disappointment to Johnson that this respectable application had not the desired effect. Yet how much reason has there been, both for himself and his country, to rejoice that it did not succeed, as he might probably have wasted in obscurity those hours in which he afterwards produced his incomparable works. About this time he made one other effort to emancipate himself from the drudgery of authorship. He applied to Dr. Adams to consult Dr. Smallbrook of the Commons, whether a person might be permitted to practice as an advocate there, without a doctor's degree in civil law. I am, said he, 
a total stranger to these studies. But whatever is a profession, and maintains numbers, must be within the reach of common abilities, and some degree of industry. Dr. Adams was much pleased with Johnson's design to employ his talents in that manner, being confident he would have attained to great eminence, and indeed I cannot conceive a man better qualified to make a distinguished figure as a lawyer, for he would have brought to his profession a rich store of various knowledge, an uncommon acuteness, and a command of language in which few could have equalled, and none have surpassed him. He who could display eloquence and wit in defence of the decision of the House of Commons upon Mr. Wilkes's election for Middlesex, and of the unconstitutional taxation of our fellow subjects in America, must have been a powerful advocate in any cause. But here also the want of a degree was an insurmountable bar. He was, therefore, under the necessity of persevering in that course, into which he had been forced, and we find that his proposal from Greenwich to Mr. Cave for a translation of Father Paul Sarpy's history was accepted. Some sheets of this translation were printed off, but the design was dropped, for it happened, oddly enough, that another person of the name of Samuel Johnson, librarian of St. Martin's in the Fields, and curate of that parish, engaged in the same undertaking, and was patronised by the clergy, particularly by Dr. Pierce, afterwards Bishop of Rochester. Several light skirmishes passed between the rival translators in the newspapers of the day, and the consequence was that they destroyed each other, for neither of them went on with the work. It is much to be regretted that the able performance of that celebrated genius, Fra Paolo, lost the advantage of being incorporated into British literature by the masterly hand of Johnson. I have in my possession, by the favour of Mr. John Nichols, a paper in Johnson's handwriting entitled Account Between Mr. Edward Cave and Sam Johnson in relation to a version of Father Paul, etc., begun August the 2nd, 1738, by which it appears that from that day to the 21st of April, 1739, Johnson received for this work 49 pounds, 7 shillings, in sums of one, two, three, and sometimes four guineas at a time, most frequently two. And it is curious to observe the minute and scrupulous accuracy with which Johnson has pasted upon it a slip of paper, which he has entitled Small Account, and which contains one article. September 9th, Mr. Cave laid down two shillings and sixpence. There is subjoined to this account a list of some subscribers to the work, partly in Johnson's handwriting, partly in that of another person, and there follows a leaf or two on which are written a number of characters which have the appearance of a shorthand, which, perhaps, Johnson was then trying to learn. To Mr. Cave, Wednesday. Sir, I did not care to detain your servant while I wrote an answer to your letter, in which you seem to insinuate that I have promised more than I am ready to perform. If I have raised your expectations by anything that may have escaped my memory, I am sorry, and if you remind me of it, shall thank you for the favour. If I made fewer alterations than usual in the debates, it was only because there appeared, and still appears to be, less need of alteration. 
The verses to Lady Farbrace may be had when you please, for you know that such a subject neither deserves much thought, nor requires it. The Chinese stories may be had folded down when you please to send, in which I do not recollect that you desired any alterations to be made. An answer to another query I am very willing to write, and had consulted with you about it last night if there had been time, for I think it the most proper way of inviting such a correspondence as may be an advantage to the paper, not a load upon it. As to the prize verses, a backwardness to determine their degrees of merit is not peculiar to me. You may, if you please, still have what I can say, but I shall engage with little spirit in an affair which I shall hardly end to my own satisfaction, and certainly not to the satisfaction of the parties concerned. As to Father Paul, I have not yet been just to my proposal, but have met with impediments which, I hope, are now at an end, and if you find the progress hereafter not such as you have a right to expect, you can easily stimulate a negligent translator. If any or all of these have contributed to your discontent, I will endeavour to remove it, and desire you to propose the question to which you wish for an answer. I am, sir, your humble servant, Sam Johnson. To Mr. Cave. No date. Sir, I am pretty much of your opinion that the commentary cannot be prosecuted with any appearance of success, for as the names of the authors concerned are of more weight in the performance than its own intrinsic merit, the public will be soon satisfied with it, and I think the examen should be pushed forward with the utmost expedition. Thus, this day, etc., an examen of Mr. Pope's essay, etc., containing a succinct account of the philosophy of Mr. Leibniz on the system of the fatalists, with a confutation of their opinions and an illustration of the doctrine of free will with what else you think proper. It will above all be necessary to take notice that it is a thing distinct from the commentary. I was so far from imagining they stood still that I conceived them to have a good deal beforehand, and therefore was less anxious in providing them more. But if ever they stand still on my account, it must doubtless be charged to me, and whatever else shall be reasonable I shall not oppose, but beg a suspense of judgment till morning, when I must entreat you to send me a dozen proposals, and you shall then have copy to spare. I am, sir, yours in Prancis, Sam Johnson. Pray muster up the proposals if you can, or let the boy recall them from the booksellers. But although he corresponded with Mr. Cave concerning a translation of Crusas's examen of Pope's Essay on Man, and gave advice as one anxious for its success, I was long ago convinced by a perusal of the preface that this translation was erroneously ascribed to him, and I have found this point ascertained, beyond all doubt, by the following article in Dr. Birch's manuscripts in the British Museum. Elisai Carteri, SPD, Thomas Birch. Versionem tuam examinis crusasiani jam pelegi. Summum stili et elegantiam et in re difficilima proprietatum admiratus. Dabam, November 27th, 1738. Indeed, Mrs. Carter has lately acknowledged to Mr. Seward that she was the translator of the examen. 
It is remarkable that Johnson's last quoted letter to Mr. Cave concludes with a fair confession that he had not a dinner. And it is no less remarkable that though in this state of want himself, his benevolent heart was not insensible to the necessities of an humble labourer in literature, as appears from the very next letter. To Mr. Cave, no date. Dear Sir, you may remember I have formerly talked with you about a military dictionary. The eldest Mr. Macbean, who was with Mr. Chambers, has very good materials for such a work which I have seen, and will do it at a very low rate. I think the terms of war and navigation might be comprised, with good explanations, in one octavo pica, which he is willing to do for twelve shillings a sheet to be made up a guinea at the second impression. If you think on it, I will wait on you with him. I am, sir, your humble servant, Sam Johnson. Pray lend me topsail on animals. I must not omit to mention that this Mr. Macbean was a native of Scotland. In the Gentleman's Magazine of this year, Johnson gave a life of Father Paul, and he wrote the preface to the volume, which, though prefixed to it when bound, is always published with the appendix, and is therefore the last composition belonging to it. The ability and nice adaptation with which he could draw up a prefatory address was one of his peculiar excellencies. It appears, too, that he paid a friendly attention to Mrs. Elizabeth Carter, for in a letter from Mr. Cave to Dr. Birch, November 28th this year, I find Mr. Johnson advises Miss C. to undertake a translation of Boethius de Corn, because there is prose and verse, and to put a name to it when published. This advice was not followed, probably from an apprehension that the work was not sufficiently popular for an extensive sale. How well Johnson himself could have executed a translation of this philosophical poet, we may judge from the following specimen which he has given in the Rambler, motto to number seven. A qui perpetua mundum ratione gubnas, terrarum calique sato, disieque terrenae neblas et pondera mollis, at que tuo splendore mica, tu nam que serenum, to requies tranquilla pies, te canary finis, principium, vector, dux semita terminus idem. O thou whose power of moving worlds presides, whose voice created, and whose wisdom guides, on darkling man in pure effulgence shine, and cheer the clouded mind with light divine. Tis thine alone to calm the pious breast, With silent confidence and holy rest. From thee, great God, we spring, To thee we tend, Path, motive, guide, original, and end. In 1739, besides the assistance which he gave to the parliamentary debates, his writings in the Gentleman's Magazine were the life of Boerhaave, in which it is to be observed that he discovers that love of chemistry which never forsook him, an appeal to the public in behalf of the editor, an address to the reader, an epigram both in Greek and Latin to Eliza, and also English verses to her, and a Greek epigram to Dr. Birch. 
It has been erroneously supposed that an essay published in that magazine this year, entitled The Apotheosis of Milton, was written by Johnson, and on that supposition it has been improperly inserted in the edition of his works by the booksellers after his decease. Were there no positive testimony as to this point, the style of the performance and the name of Shakespeare not being mentioned in an essay professedly reviewing the principal English poets, would ascertain it not to be the production of Johnson. But there is here no occasion to resort to internal evidence, for my Lord Bishop of Salisbury, Dr. Douglas, has assured me that it was written by Guthrie. His separate publications were A Complete Vindication of the Licenses of the Stage, from the malicious and scandalous aspersions of Mr. Brooke, author of Gustavus Vasa, being an ironical attack upon them for their suppression of that tragedy, and Marma Norfolkiense, or an essay on an ancient prophetical inscription in monkish rhyme, lately discovered near Lynn in Norfolk by Probus Britannicus. In this performance he, in a feigned inscription, supposed to have been found in Norfolk, the county of Sir Robert Walpole, then the obnoxious Prime Minister of this country, inveighs against the Brunswick succession, and the measures of government consequent upon it. To this supposed prophecy he added a commentary, making each expression apply to the times, with warm Anto-Hanoverian zeal. This anonymous pamphlet, I believe, did not make so much noise as was expected, and therefore had not a very extensive circulation. Sir John Hawkins relates that warrants were issued and messengers employed to apprehend the author, who, though he had forborne to subscribe his name to the pamphlet, the vigilance of those in pursuit of him had discovered, and we are informed that he lay concealed in Lambeth Marsh till the scent after him grew cold, this, however, is altogether without foundation, for Mr. Steele, one of the secretaries of the Treasury, who amidst a variety of important business, politely obliged me with his attention to my inquiry, informed me that he directed every possible search to be made in the records of the Treasury and Secretary of State's office, but could find no trace whatever of any warrant having been issued to apprehend the author of this pamphlet. Marmor Norfolkiense became exceedingly scarce, so that I, for many years, endeavoured in vain to procure a copy of it. At last I was indebted to the malice of one of Johnson's numerous petty adversaries, who in 1775 published a new edition of it, with notes and a dedication to Samuel Johnson, LLD, by Tribunus, in which some puny scribbler invidiously attempted to found upon it a charge of inconsistency against its author, because he had accepted of a pension from his present majesty, and had written in support of the measures of government. As a mortification to such impotent malice, of which there are so many instances towards men of eminence, I am happy to relate that this telum imbelle did not reach its exalted object till about a year after it thus appeared, when I mentioned it to him, supposing that he knew of the republication. To my surprise, he had not yet heard of it. He requested me to go directly and get it for him, which I did. 
he looked at it and laughed, and seemed to be much diverted with the feeble efforts of his unknown adversary, who I hope is alive to read this account. Now, said he, here is somebody who thinks he has vexed me sadly. Yet, if it had not been for you, you rogue, I should probably never have seen it. As Mr. Pope's note concerning Johnson, alluded to in a former page, refers both to his London and his Marmor non Falciense, I have deferred inserting it till now. I am indebted for it to Dr. Percy, the Bishop of Dromore, who permitted me to copy it from the original in his possession. It was presented to his lordship by Sir Joshua Reynolds, to whom it was given by the son of Mr. Richardson, the painter, the person to whom it is addressed. I have transcribed it with minute exactness, that the peculiar mode of writing and imperfect spelling of that celebrated poet may be exhibited to the curious in literature. It justifies Swift's epithet of paper-sparing Pope, for it is written on a slip no larger than a common message-card, and was sent to Mr. Richardson, along with the imitation of Juvenal. This is imitated by one Johnson, who put in for a public school in Shropshire, but was disappointed. He has an infirmity of the convulsive kind, that attacks him sometimes, so as to make him a sad spectacle. Mr. P., from the merit of this work, which was all the knowledge he had of him, endeavoured to serve him without his own application, and wrote to my Lord Gore, but he did not succeed. Mr. Johnson published afterwards another poem in Latin with notes, the whole very humorous, called The Norfolk Prophecy. P. Johnson had been told of this note, and Sir Joshua Reynolds informed him of the compliment which it contained, but, from delicacy, avoided showing him the paper itself. When Sir Joshua observed to Johnson that he seemed very desirous to see Pope's note, he answered, Who would not be proud to have such a man as Pope so solicitous in inquiring about him? The infirmity to which Mr. Pope alludes appeared to me also, as I have elsewhere observed, to be of the convulsive kind, and of the nature of that distemper called St. Vitus' dance. And in this opinion I am confirmed by the description which Sydenham gives of that disease. This disorder is a kind of convulsion. It manifests itself by halting or unsteadiness of one of the legs, which the patient draws after him like an idiot. If the hand of the same side be applied to the breast, or any other part of the body, he cannot keep it a moment in the same posture, but it will be drawn into a different one by a convulsion, notwithstanding all his efforts to the contrary. Sir Joshua Reynolds, however, was of a different opinion, and favoured me with the following paper. Those motions or tricks of Dr. Johnson are improperly called convulsions. He could sit motionless, when he was told so to do, as well as any other man. My opinion is that it proceeded from a habit, which he had indulged himself in, of accompanying his thoughts with certain untoward actions, and those actions always appeared to me as if they were meant to reprobate some part of his past conduct. Whenever he was not engaged in conversation, such thoughts were sure to rush into his mind, and for this reason any company any employment whatever, he preferred to being alone. 
The great business of his life, he said, was to escape from himself. This disposition he considered as the disease of his mind, which nothing cured but company. One instance of his absence and particularity, as it is characteristic of the man, may be worth relating. When he and I took a journey together into the West, we visited the late Mr. Banks of Dorsetshire. The conversation turning upon pictures, which Johnson could not well see, he retired to a corner of the room, stretching out his right leg as far as he could reach before him, then bringing up his left leg, and stretching his right still further on. The old gentleman, observing him, went up to him, and in a very courteous manner, assured him that though it was not a new house, the flooring was perfectly safe. The doctor started from his reverie, like a person waked out of his sleep, but spoke not a word. End of section 10